We're not going to be out of here at 1230. <clears throat> Brother David, what did John the Apostle say in, in Acts chapter 1? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. When the Lord's hour, was it? <laughs> we have a whole day here. <clears throat> We're not going to be out of here by 1230. The title of my message is God Vindicates His Actions. Before we go there, I'll, I want to share a little history, some memories with you. How the Lord worked in my life and brought me here to Sherwood. We're thanking him for these 75 years the Lord has given Sherwood Baptist Church. The Lord saved me when I was 12. But my parents did not take me to church. And as a 12-year-old, you're not taking yourself to church very conveniently, right? So I was a very weak and confused young man. But as soon as I turned 16, I had a driver's license. I started going back to church. And in short order, the Lord turned my life totally around. I was 16 in December of 1980. At the age of 16, I announced to the church that I felt called to the Lord to preach the gospel. And I was so excited about the things of the Lord. That's all I could talk about. And to everyone that I could talk to. There was a girl in our Sunday school class uh, asked me to come over and witness to her neighbor, a boy who lived across the street. He was 13 years old. Didn't know the Lord. And that was an opportunity, right? So I went, I witnessed to him, witnessed him frequently, and invited him to church. And that girl and uh, from our Sunday school class, and I frequently invited him to church. He finally came, and he kept coming. He came back, and the Lord saved him. Praise God. His name is familiar to several of you. That was Larry Jones. He's now at home with the Lord. Well, eventually, the Lord took me to Mexico as a missionary and took Larry to pastor Bible Baptist Church in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. It was Bible Baptist back in that day. And they had a Christian school. And, of course, if you have a Christian school, you go to Christian school events and you meet other pastors and other churches and, and so forth and... Larry, with his Christian school, met a pastor, young man, like-minded, who uh, struck up a good fellowship with Larry, and that, that man was Paul Brown. Well, not long after their meeting, Larry called me up in Mexico. And, and, and Larry said that they were sponsoring a new missionary to Mexico, and would I be willing to host them in Mexico, take them around and, and show him different uh, settings, types of ministry in Mexico. So take him out to a, a village setting where he could see something similar to the jungle, if not even the jungle, but then a small town uh, setting, and then also to Mexico City, the largest city in the world, so he could see all of the different, uh, or these different environments in Mexico and, and, and try to get a, a grasp on where the Lord might be calling him. And so... I said, great, y'all come. I'll be glad to have you here. And then he said, do you mind if I bring a, a, another pastor with me? 
This pastor uh, has recently become independent. They are separated from the uh, Southern Baptist Convention, and he's anxious to meet missionaries and anxious to meet pastors that are sovereign grace, and he would like to come with us on this trip. And I said, sure, bring him along. And so here Brother Larry came with Tom Montgomery, missionary who's still in Mexico City, and Brother Paul, who was pastor here for so long and is now serving the Lord in Thailand. Well, I met them uh, at the parking lot of a hotel in McAllen, Texas. That was probably January 1983, if I'm not mistaken, and Rosalind was only seven months old at that time, and we went to Mexico, and we struck up a great friendship. Tom decided to move to Mexico City. Brother Paul invited me to come speak to Sherwood, hoping the church would begin uh, to support our mission work, just like Brother Calvin was talking about serving or supporting missionaries directly. And our first visit to the church was that same year, about six months, because we had to come back to the border every six months. So about six months after I met Brother Paul, we came to Sherwood, and they began supporting us financially each month. Those are sweet memories. In 1985, it became necessary for Janet and I to move our membership to a different church, and we weren't sure exactly what the Lord had for the future for us, but Brother Paul told me that we would be welcome right here uh, for a place to, to call home while we were deciding what the Lord's will was for our future. So in December 1985, Janet and I came to Sherwood, and that was shortly after uh, Blaine and uh, Mark and let's see who, uh, well, a few others ha had moved here, so they were here just a little bit ahead of us. And we came here, and then the Lord sent us back to Mexico's missionaries in 1988 sent out from Sherwood Baptist Church. You know, as I was going out, every missionary has to have his prayer cards, right? Well, I had to design a new prayer card to hand out in the churches that I would visit. And, you know, it's customary on your prayer cards that, that you put bullet points there uh, to identify your distinctives. You know what's on most of them, independent, fundamental, premillennial, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Well, I decided to put something different there. I wanted to highlight our most important distinctive. And so I decided to put there on my prayer card, freely proclaiming the gracious gospel of our sovereign God. Brother Paul looked at that card and he said, I really like that. And he immediately had printed up a new letter, letterhead for Sherwood Baptist Church that had written there across either the top or the bottom, I'm not sure, proclaiming the gracious gospel of our sovereign God. The letterhead still has that same line on it, I believe. What was that? Why was that? We wanted to identify as a church and as a missionary to be focused on our high view of the nature of God and his gospel. And that's been the focus of Sherwood, and that's been the focus of our mission work. Well, that serves as an introduction even for my message today, because I would like to preach in the time that remains and set before you a high view of God and of his gospel. So the title is God Vindicates his actions. 
Turn to Romans 3.25 if you read in your Bible. God vindicates his actions. What I want to set before you today is that God actually, when he saves, God actually guards his own testimony. In this passage that we're going to look at, he defends his righteousness when he declares guilt-free the guilty. When he justifies sinners, he has a right, he has a way to do that, and he does. Romans 3, look at verses 25 and 26. Whom God hath set forth, and of course the last words of 24 are Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Let's bow for a prayer. Oh, Father, we would see Jesus. May through the preaching and through your word and the work of your spirit, Christ be high and lifted up before our eyes. May we see you, our righteous God, and our righteous sacrifice and a glorious salvation through your perfect work. Bless us with grace today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope to expound this verse briefly as much as I can under five headings. It could go to many, a long series of sermons, but I want to cover this briefly under five headings. Now, here's the first. Number one, these verses suggest to us that there is an important question that must be answered. What is that question? Well, it jumps out at us there at the last part of verse 26. That he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. What is the question? How can God justify the wicked and still be just himself when he does so? Is that possible? The Lord has done something to defend his righteousness when he justifies sinners. He guards his own testimony. We'll see that here. How do we answer that question? His righteousness. He speaks of. In verse 26, that I, I, I say at this time his righteousness. He declares his righteousness. That he might be just. And so is he really a righteous God? Is he a just God who will then turn around and say to a sinner, you're guilt free? Can he justify he that believeth? We think about this one, the one, he that believeth in Jesus. Who is he? Well, in his person, what is he? Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 3 has gone into great detail to show and to say and to re-say and restate and to show different ways that all men, every man, woman, Every individual on the planet is ungodly. He is a sinner. He is unrighteous. He is guilty. He is wicked. And yet this verse tells us that God justifies the unjust. 
Moses said that God is glorious in holiness. Is that true? Really? How can a glorious and holiness God justify the ungodly? Zephaniah the prophet said, He is a just Lord. Is he really? Can he justify the wicked? David said that God is angry with the wicked every day. Was that just a bluff? At the end, he's just going to say, Ah, I didn't mean it really. How can he justify the guilty? Well, if God is glorious in holiness and he is a just Lord and he is wicked with the, or he is angry with the wicked every day, God must fully deal with sin. And this passage shows us that he does so. Number one, the question. It's there. How can he do it? How can God justify the wicked and still be just? Well, number two, here is this. The Old Testament sacrifices did not accomplish it. They didn't do it. You look up above here in the same chapter in verse 20. Paul had just stated, therefore, by the deeds of the law. And he's thinking of the Old Testament. He's thinking of the Old Covenant. He's thinking of the law of Moses. And he says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in its sight. And whatever may jump at you in your thinking when you read those words, the deeds of the law, you have to include there the sacrifices that were made throughout the Old Testament. And he says the deeds of the law, even through those Old Testament sacrifices, the the bulls and goats and lambs and dove and whatever else was offered up. He says none of those things will justify a sinner. You know, no doubt it has to be so that serious, and I mean underline serious, serious thinkers during those generations both believers and even unbelievers, if they were thinking about it. Serious thinkers would reason that, you know, animal sacrifices just are not adequate to take away sin of human beings. There's no comparison between the value of a human soul and an animal or the the death of an animal and human sin. And the Scripture teaches us it it would only provide ceremonial cleansing Ceremonial cleansing for covenant living under the old covenant. That's what it was there for and to point sinners to Christ. But those animal sacrifices were insufficient. Their value always came up short. It would not take away the sin of men. Look with me over in Hebrews 9. Read with me there in Hebrews 9 verses 8 and 9. In Hebrews 9, verses 8 and 9, the Word has something to say about this. It says, The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was standing, he's looking the way into the presence of God was not made 
manifest. While the first tabernacle was standing, the earthly tabernacle, which was a figure for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, that would not make him that did service perfect as pertaining the conscience. Did they have a place? Yes, they did. Did they make him perfect pertaining the conscience? No, he would be aware every time he had sinned and then he offered a, a, an animal as a sacrifice for that sin, his conscience still told him that didn't do it. It had to be repeated over and over. And you look at next chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. No one was made perfect through those sacrifices that they offered over and over. In verse 2 it says, For then they would, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because that the worshipers once purged would have had no more conscience of sin. But you see, they did. They did have conscience of sin. Because those animal sacrifices did not purge their conscience and it did not wash away their sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made for the sins every year. So they still had to remember they were there and they have to be dealt with. Verse 4, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. It never was possible. All through the Old Testament, not a one of those sacrifices ever took away sins. And their conscience told them that. Something more was necessary. Those Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it. Well, number three. If those Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it, then how were Old Testament saints forgiven? You look here in 321 of Romans, and look just the first part there. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. Oh, without the law. The righteousness of God without the law. So if it wasn't through the law, which was the word that he had given to Old Testament believers, and it wasn't through that, so it's another way. It's without the law. Did that suggest then that uh, maybe God just doled out a pardon? Does he just say, uh, oh, well, I forgive you. Look at what the Lord said in Psalm 82, verse 2. In Psalm 82, in verse 2. Here's what the Lord says to men. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Is that what God's doing? Just accepting the persons of the wicked? That would be judging unjustly. God himself states. He condemns unjust judges. So is he one? Does he just dole out a pardon and say, I'll accept your person even though you are wicked? Jump forward to Proverbs 17.15. Proverbs 17 and verse 15. The Lord says, He that justifieth the wicked, 
Isn't that what Romans says he does? He that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. Lord, how are you going to do this? You've backed yourself into a corner because it's an abomination to justify the wicked. You know, the Muslim says that Allah can do whatever he wants. He's God. Allah can do whatever he wants. He's not bound by a holy nature. So whatever he would like to do, he can do it. And if he does one thing, it's okay. And if he does the opposite next, it's okay. Because he doesn't have a holy nature. He does whatever he wants and no one can tell him. That's not right. Therefore, Muslims believe that Allah, since he can just do whatever he wants to do, that Allah just grants amnesty to the ones who repent and confess sufficiently. God, Allah, in that, in that case, will just say, oh, well, I forgive you because you said you were sorry and you repented enough. And maybe if it's a bad enough sin that you may have to do some ritual good deeds, but if you do enough ritual good deeds and you just repent enough, then he'll just grant you an amnesty and say, well, I just, I'll overlook those sins. I forgive you. You look into this book right here. The one true God of heaven and earth could never do such a thing. Look at Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all His ways are judgment. And the word means just judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. You see those words there? Perfect, just, truth without iniquity, just, and right. This verse doesn't describe what God decided to do. It describes what God is. Amen. This is His nature. His very nature is truth. And He always speaks the truth. He is without iniquity and He cannot sin. Why? Because it is His nature. He is just and right in everything that He does. He could not just decide that a sinner, oh well, here's an amnesty. Walk away forgiven. He's governed. Yes, God, holy God, sovereign God can do whatever he pleases. But there's one thing he can't do, and that is violate his own holy nature. All that he does will be in accord with that nature. So God can never just decide to just grant a pardon 
in our modern sense of the word. It's okay. We'll forget about it. God cannot do that. So that brings us now to number four. So how, God, can you be righteous and just and yet justify any sinner? How can it happen? It wasn't by the animal sacrifices, and it's not by an amnesty or a pardon. How can you justify a sinner? And as you know, we look here at our verse in Romans 3, look back there again. 25, for whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Paul here actually lays emphasis on the salvation of Old Testament saints in this part of the passage. The remission of sins that are past. If two and three, my points there, are true, Old Testament sacrifices didn't do it, and it's not just a pardon. If those things are true, well then for 4,000 years, to the unregenerate mind, to the unbelieving world, it would seem that God was inconsistent with himself. He could not justify the wicked, but he did. He violated his own holy claims in his own professed holy nature. Old Testament saints believed they were forgiven and accepted by God. Old Testament scripture reassured them that such was the case. They were forgiven and accepted by God. Look again there at that second part of verse 25. He says, and I mentioned this already, but it says, for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Let's be clear about this. That phrase, sins that are passed, does not refer to our sins that we committed before we received Christ as Savior, for our past sins. That's not what it's referring to, that he forgives our past sins. This refers to the sins that were remitted, they were forgiven from the time of Adam up to the time of the cross. All of that Old Testament history, before the sacrifice at the cross had ever taken place, during those thousands of years, did God just overlook sins? Did he just grant a pardon? Well, that sort of salvation would tarnish the testimony of God. Tarnish is probably not even strong enough a word because it would prove that he was less than absolutely holy and just and truthful in all that he taught in those scriptures. So then how were Old Testament saints saved? God himself would permit no confusion on this. His holy name must not be blemished with a lack of clarity on this subject. Paul knows that. He gives us a definitive answer. How were those Old Testament saints saved? How can 
God be righteous and justify a sinner. The first part of verse 25 tells us how. Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. A propitiation. What is a propitiation? It's a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that is adequate to placate his wrath. To take away his wrath against sin. The scripture is clear that a sinner is under the wrath of God. You need to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones say it. The wrath of God. (laughs) It's stronger than our southern English. It's wrath. That's where the sinner stands. But there is a sacrifice that is adequate, that is sufficient to take away that wrath. Now this wrath is not... An irrational wrath, an unpredictable wrath, a capricious wrath. That was the gods, the heathen gods. This is not, when we look at God, the holiness of God and His wrath against sin, this is not the anger of the gods. You made me mad, so now I've got to have blood. This is not that. Not in the least. This isn't even remotely to be compared with what we always used to see in the 50s and 60s in the television shows, throw the young girl in the volcano. That kind of sacrifice. I know some of you don't even have a clue what I'm talking about when I say that, but others do. It's not that kind of wrath. A holy God has no fellowship with sin. And he must deal with that sin. And he says here, Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice that exhausts all of God's wrath. It falls on Him. And there is no more. You see, Christ steps into our place. He endures the wrath that was our due. That's a precious truth. Substitution. Substitutionary sacrifice. Hmm. You stop and think about it. Well, is substitution someone else taking the place of another one? Is that really fair? Hmm. Just an illustration. Brother Calvin has committed a grave offense against the government of the United States, and he's got to pay a $100,000 fine. So Elijah, pay up. Does that seem fair? 
substitution? Well, that illustration gets a point across, but it doesn't even match here because we're talking about wrath, not just paying a bill. We're talking about wrath, bearing the wrath of someone else. Substitution, someone taking the wrath that I should have experienced, that just honestly seems unfair, doesn't it? But this sacrifice is exceptional. You see, there's things going on here that just don't, can't be explained with any illustration. You see, when Christ goes to the cross, we have to remember this, that there is one God, there is unity in the Godhead, And in this sacrifice, God offers himself. Do you see the one who is offended suffers the penalty of the one who offends? God offers himself. He becomes the substitute. And it's true, the Father gives the Son, the Father gives His only begotten Son, the Scripture says, Jesus Christ. That is God bearing His own wrath on our behalf. In addition to that, Jesus Christ is giving Himself, the second person of the Godhead, And that's the greatest love possible. What greater love is there that a man should lay down his life for his brethren? That's this substitution. No, we can't compare this substitution to any illustration we would mention. We may make a point, but it doesn't capture the truth that's there. God offers himself. He himself, when he pours out the wrath, takes it upon himself and Jesus Christ demonstrates the greatest love possible when he steps into our place. We've read who knows how many times Isaiah 53 and verse 11 he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. You want to underline that word satisfied there? You see the wrath of God was exhausted and there's not any more. When he sees the travail of his soul, there is the propitiation, and he is satisfied. No more wrath. And he took it himself. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify. You want to underline that? Isn't that what this passage is talking about? How can he be just and justify him that believeth in Jesus? By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. Yes, God is satisfied and he is free to justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. He took our place. He endured our wrath. And his sacrifice is a perfect propitiation that takes away the wrath of God.
And in, in Romans 3.25, this sacrifice provided for the remission of sins that are past. Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. That sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago covered all of the sins of the Lord's people from the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal life. He says that sacrifice, that propitiation covered all those sins from the day of Adam right up to the day of the cross. And so he says there in 326 of Romans that at this time he may declare his righteousness. He had to do it sometime, didn't he? He could have at the Garden of Eden made the sacrifice and made it applicable to all the future sins. He could have waited till the last day and seen Christ crucified and made it applicable to all the past sins. But he chose to do it at this time, Paul says. And therefore, we can say that it is one sacrifice for all of history, past, present, and future. At this time, he has declared his righteousness and it's a righteousness for all times. That's how God can be just and justify the sinner. He is just. And when he sacrifices a substitute, he makes himself that sacrifice. That is justice, a just God beyond imagination. The fifth point that I want to make here and bring to our attention is this. It's the title of the sermon. Maybe it's a little awkward. God vindicates his actions. God not only maintains his justice when he justifies a sinner, but he also takes care to vindicate himself before the world. He wants that to be known. He takes care to make that fact known in such a manner that no one can challenge what he has done. No one can say, if you're really holy, how can you forgive the guilty? God did not make this sacrifice behind closed doors. Pilate didn't drag Christ into the inner court and crucify him where no one but the soldiers would see what was happening. It was God's purpose that it happened there on the roadside, on a hill, where everyone passing could see the soldiers the disciples, unbelieving, mocking Jews, where all could see. Not behind closed doors. He made it public. Hypothetically, 
hypothetically, Christ might even have been caught up to heaven, right? Well, in heaven, far away from the jeering of the unbelieving world, the Father could have had Christ suffer right there within heaven. He would still be the perfect sacrifice. He could pour out His wrath on Christ right there unseen by mocking eyes. And His divine holiness and wrath would have been satisfied right there in heaven. He could have done it all right there. But in that case, the world could have still continued to hurl their accusations, telling God, how can you really be just and say you forgive sinners? No one would have seen. No one would have known. But God says to the world, I am perfectly holy. This is no amnesty. I deal directly with sin. I do it for the whole world to see. Look again at 325 of Romans, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation. Do you notice those words? Whom God hath set forth. Paul uses a word here that means that God chose to display publicly Christ as a propitiation. That's what the word means. Christ's death was put on display before the world. It could even be translated showcased. You have a store, you put things out where people can see it. It's showcased. That's the word used here. God displayed his righteousness for all to see. There in the middle of 325, it says, to declare his righteousness. There's another key word right there. Declare. Paul uses a different word, but it's another important word. Because that word declare, that's a word that means to give proof. I have showcased the death of Christ to give proof of my righteousness. That's what we should understand when we read that. He set him forth. There he is on display before the world. And it declares something. It's giving proof. At the cross, God proved to the world that he righteously punishes sin. He doesn't wink at sin. He doesn't overlook it. He doesn't declare amnesty. In the first of... 26, he uses that word declare again. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. He is giving proof. He is declaring and giving proof of his righteousness. So that he can be just Yes, he must be just and the justifier, and he wants the world to know it. 
All states declare twice. He's emphasizing it. He is just when he justifies the sinner. So in this way, God not only sustained his own holiness, righteousness, justice in saving sinners by putting the guilt and wrath upon Jesus Christ, but he defended that righteousness before the world. He vindicates himself. He vindicates his action of every time that he justifies a guilty sinner. That guilty sinner can look and say, Christ took my sin and he bore my wrath in my place and God is holy. The glory of his holy name remains unstained. There's no blot on his testimony as if he just swept sin under the rug. He fully dealt with sin. Praise God. We shouldn't forget that when God justifies sinners, he doesn't leave them in bondage to sin. That's a whole other sermon. He transforms them. It's not as if he justifies sinners and then just leaves them living that life of sin. He transforms them by his regenerating grace. But the truth we see in all of this this is that God has forgiven and justifies us with perfect justice. God has vindicated himself. He's justified himself before the world by accomplishing it publicly. And no one can accuse him of compromising with sin or acting unjustly. We trust in a perfectly just God. We trust in the perfect work of the just one, Jesus Christ. Through Christ, Christ alone, it can truly be said, the words of the psalm, 8510, so you can put it up there. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. We can have peace and God be righteous in Christ. And I urge any of you today who have never come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith to look at him. Behold what he's done. God has righteously dealt with sin. And he will justify you if you believe in Christ. Not just that head, intellectual, historical faith, but you come to Jesus Christ in your heart and you embrace him and you trust him as your hope. He'll call you his own. And you will be declared guilt-free through the work and sacrifice of Christ. Let's bow.